You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's your pleasure, sir? Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Clive Barker says Candyman will wreck your teeth. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and your suffering will be legendary even in hell. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew. Willy Wonka, everybody. Great start to the horror October month. Willy Wonka, which is basically a horror movie anyway, when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, 100%. They, they yeah. pick off, it's like the same structure as Dawn of the Dead, in that they pick off those children one by one. Pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but one of the children here who's laughing in the corner, in the mysterious corners of Cabrini Green, is our guest who's been on a couple other episodes previous. Uh, he was on our Sam Raimi episode and our Dick Miller episode, and he's returned here, Mr. Scott. Crawford, Scott, how are you? I'm doing good. I just got back from getting a golden shower baptism, and I'm feeling ready to do go. Hmm. I have a lot of questions about that. So. <laughs> we, we, we shouldn't. We shouldn't probably go into it. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but uh, welcome back, Scott. Of course, and uh, you're appropriately here because I know you're a pretty big horror fan. And uh, this is our first episode of October. And if you're new, if you're part of, say, the ESO audience who just got introduced to us only about like a, a little over a month ago or so, uh, we last year did four horror-centric episodes for the month of October. And we're going to do that again because uh, Adam and I are pretty big horror fans and we communicate in the realm of horror fandom a lot, given uh, some of our past podcast history. Yes, that's very, very true. This week, uh, we're doing an, a topic that you were very... Um, adamant about doing Adam. Uh, we are doing Clive Barker because on the 5th of October is his 67th birthday, so happy birthday, Mr. Barker. Yes, yes. happy birthday. Absolutely. Yes, and uh, Adam, you're a very big fan of not just the films that this uh, man's uh, work has been adapted into, but the works themselves, yes. Absolutely. Like I, I said uh, at the uh, close of our last episode, I actually do own, I checked, every one of his books that has been published in some form or another, a couple of the graphic novels based on the work, a lot of the Hellraiser comics. Actually, this past April, I went to a convention, and Scott was at the same one. I got a Hellraiser poster signed by the entire principal cast, including Clive Barker. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan. And uh, when did that start for you? Oh, God, man. Probably, I was pretty young. I want to say like 11 or 12, because I had an issue of Fangoria, and I saw the Cenobites. And, it, and I was instantly like blown away. I'm like, what the hell is this? And uh, since then, they've been probably one of my favorite like horror antagonists, if you want to call it that, especially, you know, obviously Pinhead himself. 
But uh, I just think the whole idea and the mythos behind it is just fantastic. And what kind of attracts you to Barker? What do you think makes him distinctive amongst other horror authors? Uh, what I really like about it is, A, um, he definitely amps up the sort of sexual aspect in all of his stories and makes it sort of a, I don't want to say a dirty thing, but really puts a lot more into it as far as the type of pleasure you can derive from it or what it can cause people to do, anything like that. And he's got also a very original take on most of the things that we've come to take for granted, like vampires and you know, ghosts and demons and everything like that. Like he definitely gives it everything his own spin. And I'd say he's 85% hit. I mean, there's a couple that are like, well, well, this was okay. But he's he's really right on most of the time. And uh, Scott, would you say that you're similarly a fan of uh, Barker? I'm guessing that's why, given you're on our fucking show. Um, but would you say that, that he, he, you're a big fan of the man's uh, work? No, I don't own all of the books like uh, Adam does, but Barker is pretty much the reason why I became a horror fan, because... At the age of eight years old, I snuck downstairs while my parents were watching Hellraiser, and I watched the scene of Frank building himself back up from the pool of blood in the attic, and that scarred my brain for many, many years before I actually sat down and watched the movie. And yeah, like Adam, I got to meet Clive Barker at the convention, super excited, had him sign my Nightbreed poster, and I actually have a six-foot-tall pinhead statue down in my basement signed by Doug Bradley as well, like hellraiser is definitely one of those films that has like been with me most of my life and majority of his movies also i am a fan of even our bad one tonight i'm kind of a fan well for me i'm um, more of a fan i guess of the adapted works because uh, i haven't really read any of barker's stories myself um it's weird this is a, a an odd turn where uh you were the more redded one as it were it's the only time it's gonna fucking happen <laughs> maybe i don't know it's, it's like you know Unless it's Penthouse Forum or something like that. <laughs> our next episode on Penthouse Forum, uh, our picks are. <laughs> but, but no, um, I haven't read any of his books, I haven't read any of his short stories, but I have seen many of the films. Um, I'm a big fan of Hellraiser, obviously. I, I would definitely agree. The first Hellraiser, I think, does such a great job of building what Adam kind of mentioned about, like, sort of the lengths to which people will go in order to sort of find pleasure and to sort of gain a certain sense of pleasure that they've been missing and how that can even extend to just having skin and being alive and all this other stuff. I think that that has sort of been a thing that's affected a lot of his other works. And it's interesting, he's also one of the few horror authors who actually took on the director's chair. Not many times, because he directed the first Hellraiser, uh, with the impetus for that being one of our movies that we're going to talk about tonight. Yep. Yes, and uh, he also directed Nightbreed, as some of you guys mentioned, which is weirdly much more of like an urban fantasy movie that has bits of horror, more in the terms of like having, oddly enough of all people, David Cronenberg play a serial killer, which is very interesting if you've never seen that movie. It's, oh, and it's he's the best. He's phenomenal, yes, I, I totally agree. Um, and then Lord of Illusions, which was almost the pick that we did for our good pick, and I actually hadn't seen until doing uh, the sort of research, I guess, for this episode, I actually watched it. And it's interesting. I think it has a lot of cool ideas i just think it somewhat falls apart during the third act but it's a cool sort of noir magician horror story that's at least at the very least very unique that's the big thing i really appreciate about his directorial efforts especially is that they're unlike most other horror movies that were coming out around that time they feel very distinctive for sure but uh we're not talking about any films he's directed tonight we are talking about two films that are adapted from him he technically wrote one of them 
which he <laughs> he said as much. Um, we're gonna start oh. off with uh, for those of you don't, for those of you who don't know, at the end of our last episode, uh, we picked between Adam had two good movies and I had two bad movies, and we each assigned those two movies of our own at numbers between one and ten, and then we ended up uh, doing some random picking. We'll be doing that for our next episode at the very end of this one, so stay tuned for that. And uh, we ended up with. First, the bad pick, which we're going to discuss, uh, Rawhead Rex, uh, which is one of the early adaptations of one of Clive Barker's stories, which is one of my picks. And then after that, we'll, we'll talk about the good pick, which is one of Adam's, which is the 1992 film Candyman, uh, which takes a lot of liberties, apparently, from the original short story, which we'll talk about as well. But let's get into the bad feature first. Let's get into Rawhead Rex. What I saw wasn't human. Oh my god! And what's more, it saw me. This thing. Rawhead Rex. Now, Rawhead Rex, uh, that came out in uh, on April 17th, uh, 1987, in the States at least, um, and uh, it's directed by a guy named George uh, Pavlou, and was written by Clive Barker based on his story, at least in credit. From what I have done some research on, Clive Barker has said that he wrote maybe a draft and a half of this adaptation, and then it was kind of taken and expounded upon uh, by George and his compatriot film crew, and then Clive Barker saw it, and was so disgusted with what they had done with his idea and his script that he made a concerted effort when Hellraiser shortly went into production afterward uh, to be the directorial voice. So it, whatever we may say uh, about Rawhead Rex in the next, I don't know, 20 minutes to half an hour, um, we can at least say that without it, we wouldn't get the distinctive stamp of Barker on Hellraiser. Yeah, I mean... So I guess it's got that going for it. <laughs> yeah, um, this was my pick, because, um, admittingly, in terms of doing a bad Clive Barker adaptations, one, I was a bit concerned doing the pickings for this episode, especially because I could have just done two bad Hellraiser sequels, but we didn't want that. We didn't no, want to just God. sit here and talk about a bad Hellraiser sequel, necessarily, not at all. And those would have been boring as hell. Right, that's true. Um, as opposed to Rawhead Rex, which I had heard about... Mostly in terms of, like I mentioned, the backstory of Clive Barker not really being a fan of it, um, and then deciding to go into directing movies because of it. And I'm like, alright, this will at least be a bit interesting. And I'll say, it has a few unique touches I didn't expect. Like, one, I didn't know it takes place in Ireland. Uh, it's like a small Irish village that we spend most of our time in following a family, mainly the father who was doing some research about the, the neighborhood and finds out about this villainous creature named Rawhead Rex, who's some sort of demon... It's been kept at bay. You could see maybe an interesting urban legend kind of take of like, oh, there's this mysterious creature, it's roamed here before, and it's hidden underneath the, you know, very earth that this little cottage town sits on. In practice, it becomes like a town being stalked by a very overzealous metal fan from the looks of it. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> Just like, because apparently a big thing that I haven't read the original source material of this. Have I, either of you? Yes. I've uh, read little excerpts from it. I never actually, like, read the full thing. So, from what I've heard, then, I'll go with Adam as our source on this. Uh, 
Oh, Rawhead, <laughs> Rawhead Rex apparently, in what I've from what I've gleaned from Clive Barker's quotes, was a lot more sort of a creature that was designed to be like extremely tall, kind of lanky, oh. disturbing, almost kind of like what would become a Slender Man. Is that accurate? Uh, that's that's pretty accurate. And uh, the reason he got his namesake because the only way people when they tried to describe the creature to other people or the police or whatever is that his face looked like raw meat, like just diced up raw butchered meat. So that's why he got the name Raw. He's not a professional wrestler in, in metal costume. Let's put it that way. It's more of a, definitely more feels like a supernatural threat as far as in the short story. You got to figure the short story is in one of the books of blood. I want to say it's in volume four, maybe five. And it's, you know, 15, 20 pages. That's it. Under, I've never understood the logic of taking a 15 to 20 page short story and making a two hour movie out of it. I mean, it's, it's just this movie's filled with so much padding and extra bullshit. I mean, on paper, I could see doing that with a short story because there's less you have to necessarily adapt. There's less details you have to cut out. There's more you can kind of fill in. I see that on paper, but I do agree in practice with this. Sh- there's a lot of just like, look at this Irish countryside. Look at that <laughs> fucking scarecrow that we have to stop the car and go back for to build really bad tension. All sorts of other stuff like that. Um, it's it, They definitely are um, kind of compounding it. And it's, it's definitely a bummer when apparently he was supposed to be like, what, nine foot tall or something, right, in the original story? Yeah, I don't think they actually, maybe they give us height, but I know they say he's... I forget the exact terminology they use, but yeah, he's super, super tall. Yeah, he's inhumanly tall, right? As opposed to yeah, yeah, getting like, like a six foot three dude probably to be in there. <laughs> right, exactly. Which they were like, saying was seven to eight feet tall in the movie. When right, right. Yeah, there's pl- there's plenty of times where, especially there's like point of view shots of Rawhead where it's like a camera on like a really huge like a steady cam that's super extended up and it's like he's not that tall guys he's like <laughs> above average height <laughs> so adam um all of this uh, sort of background is to segue into your thoughts uh, what do you think of rawhead ricks let's put it this way all right i think i saw this before i knew who clive barker was and i thought like the creature was cool looking and all this stuff and i just i always remembered the creature design and that was the last time i seen it until yesterday and I have basically completely forgotten 75% of the movie. And I watched it yesterday, and the creature design is terrible. It's such a boring movie. And then anytime they were in, like, the caravan area, I just kept wanting, like, Brad Pitt to walk out from Snatch. Oh, like, that's, 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 all snatch. <laughs> that's all I was hoping for. You know, Periwinkle Blue. I'm like, just any, any levity. That's a boring, boring Boring, forgettable film. Uh, Guy Ritchie's Rawhead Rex sounds interesting. That'd be badass. <laughs> I don't know. I saw Aladdin. Maybe not badass. Calm down. I, I would say probably more That'd interesting. Be mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It would probably be mediocre as opposed to maybe this. But then again, uh, Scott, you kind of mentioned obliquely that despite being our bad pick, you have a fondness for Rawhead Rex. I wouldn't say fondness. There's just like this something I like. I guess it's one of those uh, so bad it's good movies for me like i got introduced to rawhead rex uh about three and a half years ago when i was still with the horror drunks podcast and that was my first time watching it and like the first time i seen it i had to ask my co-hosts i'm like so did the guy that created the comic book the pit get inspired by rawhead rex because holy shit that cre- that character from the comic books looks exactly like rawhead rex yeah it does <laughs> And yeah, I, I swear it's like an exact inspiration. But uh, 
anyways, yeah, I, I find this movie to be you know really bad, terrible acting and all that, but there are just like some elements of it that are just like nuggets of very interesting ideas and kind of cool scenes, but just done so poorly. And like, obviously they had probably a terrible budget and whoever did the creature effects just didn't know what the hell they were doing. Cause it just looked like someone put a giant horse head mask on and was running around acting like an idiot. I don't know. I find this like charmingly bad. Like I just have fun watching it. Yeah, I guess I kind of fall in the middle between you two, uh, because there are definitely, I think, very funny bad moments. I would say in particular, my favorite sequence of this whole movie is when he attacks the farm couple um, in their little cottage. His, um, his wife is like, oh, honey, you forgot to lock the the barn door. Oh, okay, I better go close it. I thought I closed it. And then Rawhead's just, like, standing behind some fucking boxes and then just, like, comes out <laughs> and then attacks that guy. And then his wife looks out and he's just like, oh! Oh my god! And then he just comes in, like, breaks the window, and then I think in a very classic example of a funny bad moment, while she's running around the house, he's just tossing around the fucking kitchen in the most hilariously nonchalant way possible. He's just like, flip this table, and then fuck these eggs, and then the dramatic shot of the spaghetti falling over is my favorite. Just, no, not... As an Italian, I was just like, oh, mamma mia, no, not the spaghetti. <laughs> that whole scene reminded me of that, um, that gif of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Fuck this and fuck that. Exactly. Fuck it, it feels very much like that. It's like he's throwing a tantrum as opposed to actually being intimidating. And yeah. Like, once again, that actress, God bless her, just like going around like, oh my God. Like the way she's going around the house and just like falling over fucking nothing in the hallway just like oh oh god no why and then later on like she gets attacked by rawhead and she's pregnant and you're like oh is he gonna kill her and then she's alive but she's like i guess haunted by it i don't know what the fuck happened to her i think she was just like uh traumatized by it so when that guy came up to her when he found her alive she like freaked out thinking it was rawhead rex for a split second because then she started laughing hysterically right after that so i'm thinking uh maybe it was that and then the you know the whole fertility thing being what defeats Rawhead, I think, is the whole reason why she was still left alive, because of her having the child in her. Really, it's but. about the power of women and the effects of PTSD. It's a very deep film. You're right, Scott. That changes my entire perspective. Yes. This movie's great. I, I hope it would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but then, I, I do agree also with Dan at the same time that there are very long, boring stretches of this movie. It's only about like 80 minutes long, so it's not like a, a huge sit, but I do agree that it's definitely padded to get to feature length. It definitely feels like one of those very short movies that still can't quite manage to get, you know, where it wants to be. I think, and especially because, like, we're, we're mentioning Rawhead Rex and his, this, like, very bad design, which apparently only had about um, four weeks to design the suit, and the suit apparently is just, like, a single piece that the actor would put on, and you can tell. There's no articulation. The face is always the same. It's very awkward. It's very unintentionally funny, and I think also it's a big problem of, like we kind of mentioned last week with uh, Kevin Smith and the way he uses monsters in his horror comedies, they light it so poorly to where you see every single bad detail. Like, it's in plain daylight most of the time, and it looks terrible. The only time, I will say with the movie, and the monster actually becomes not scary, but at least kind of atmospheric and creepy, is the bit where the main hero is walking through the forest at night, and then he looks up and Rawhead is at the top of, like, a cliff face staring directly at him from below, and it's mostly him cascading in shadow. They should have just done that most of the time. (laughs) Well, he's got the head. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, hide that creature in the shadows at all times. 
I mean, it literally looks like like either A, like Pitt, like Scott was saying, but like even if like Eeyore started hitting a tanning bed and working out, like he just looks like a giant donkey creature. Like it's, it does. I mean, Eeyore, like if he had like started juicing up a bit and the juicing really did not affect him very well. He got like rabies from juicing. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. But yeah, he's using like bat steroids or something like that. <laughs> but, Thanks for noticing. <laughs> hell, Rawhead even looks derpy as hell when it does like this up close because it looks like he's all cross-eyed because of the weird like LED lights in his eyes. <laughs> yes. That's, maybe that's why he was throwing the tantrum in the kitchen. Maybe it's like... <laughs> Well, the can opener is rusty. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Aside from the creature, even, uh, as we mentioned, there's not much to any of the sort of human characters. It's a very typical sort of family moves in. There's a lot of mysterious uh, characters all around the, the little town that are very dismissive of him. There's a few funny moments uh, with something, so particularly the lead detective character has one of my favorite moments where somebody says, the child who was attacked, um, he didn't say anything, but he drew something. Thing, and it's this really bad cartoonist drawing and the actor is just like my god I can't believe it <laughs> I wish there was just more shit like that maybe the yank was right <laughs> on that <laughs> god Yes, there's him, but there's also, I, I do love, he's not the lead preacher, but he's the one that keeps being an antagonistic, antagonistic asshole to our main lead. Yeah. Like, especially the bit where he's, you know, trying to take pictures of, like, all these different Rawhead Rex artifacts, and the preacher comes over and scares him. He's like, oh, I dropped my camera, and the preacher stomps his camera like, oops! Like, I love that guy's acting. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> Okay. And he goes so over to the top towards the end, especially after what I mentioned earlier when you introduced me, the whole golden shower baptism that Rawhead Rex gives him. He just kind of goes like fucking bananas after that. Well, especially the bit where he's talking to, I think, the other preacher. He's like, what do you think? You can contain him? You can't? He's Rawhead! And he just like really goes for it. That's the thing. I wish other people were at that weird level of 10, like him, or eight, later on even when the inspector becomes possessed by Rawhead Rex, and it's during the middle yes. of that chaos with the fire, and he's just like, oh, you master my own name. Like, he becomes a weird Igor character. I feel like we gotta address it, that this ancient demon that supposedly, or whatever it is, that's been around since before the time of man and everything, its name is Rawhead Rex. That is the stupidest fucking name, dude. That I swear to God, that's like a professional wrestler's name. It, like so the professional really wrestler's is. Rawhead and his dog is Rex. It instantly sort of made me chuckle. So maybe, maybe that's something that might be going against this movie too. It's hard to take it serious with a name like that. Oh, yeah. Probably works better is what you're saying in the story where it's sort of like a, a colloquial name, but he has probably some actual demonic name. Yeah, absolutely. He's got that name from, like, the kids and the villagers in town. That's what they call him. I, right, in fact, right. I don't know that you actually get his real name in the story. You might, but that's just what they call him. And that makes more sense as opposed to just literally, like, an ancient scroll. It's like, Raw Hedrix. Like, I think they, don't they literally do that in this movie where it's, like, le- reading yeah. ancient texts and say Raw Hedrix? Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> But it's the same idea with, like, Pinhead. Right. He's never referred to as Pinhead in the story. In fact, in any of the movies, I think, like, they call him Pinhead. Like, yeah, whatever, Pinhead. Like, trying to make fun of him or not. Yeah, he's always credited as, like, lead Cenobite. Yeah, he's lead Cenobite. That's it. But, yeah, God, what a stupid name. But, like you said, it's, like, written in Sanskrit and some, like, ancient silks. 
you know, that's got spices and gems with it. Uh, and so the moon shall turn black as night, and he shall become forth rawhead rex <laughs> get the fuck out of here like I'd, lo- I'd love to hear the kate blanchett at the beginning of lord of the rings style monologue about in this kingdom yeah. long ago rawhead rex was trying to destroy this small little village and he just comes fucking barreling out of like the ground in grave digger you know fucking like walk by pantera blasting or thunder kiss 65 doing donuts <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing you know what it's it's like if you embrace either going full stupid metal with it or going as you mentioned kind of like this ethereal story i think it probably would work better it feels almost like they kind of meet in the middle and that makes it just feel so ungangly and just like even like there's some of that with the aesthetics even where like it feels mostly like um a, a sort of uh 50s inspired horror movie um, with stuff like the, the the couple that goes up, the teen couple goes on in the middle of the woods. But then, like we mentioned, Rawhead Rex comes out looking like he's a fucking understudy for Ozzy Osbourne or some shit. Mm-hmm. That teen couple are, like, going at it in front of his little brother. Yeah. And it's just like, but watch the so film. Bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I've seen them all. I love that kid. I've seen all of them. <laughs> so stupid, yeah. Are there any other interesting bits that we haven't talked about here, especially Scott, since you're so in love with the So Bad's good qualities of this movie. Is there any other moments we haven't mentioned, maybe, that delighted you? I think we've pretty much covered, like, especially, like, the over-the-top acting from, like, just half, like, just the handful of actors, like, really kind of, like, amps it up for entertainment value. I like, And like you said, I wish everyone would have went full ham on this. The main character is so drab and boring and really tends to forget all about his son that got devoured by Rawhead Rex, like, very fast. Just going to say that. I was like, (laughs) they kill that kid, they mourn for, like, an hour. And then he's just like, well, whatever, I gotta find him. Well, it's much worse where, like, his wife and daughter are still very much mourning, and they're still in, like, so despondent. And he's like, but I gotta stop him. Just like, our son died two hours ago. (laughs) He's like, I don't give a shit, peace. (laughs) I I somehow know what to do. (laughs) <laughs> that's also a really fun bit when his son actually uh, gets captured by Rawhead and you can tell the kid is trying not to laugh like I, I just oh, like, oh yeah <laughs> seen that kid like <laughs> and I'm fairly certain like when Rawhead sticks his head in the in the car I'm almost positive there's a scene where like his nose hits like the hood and it like pushes in like scrunches up I'm almost positive <laughs> we kind of reference these quote unquote uh, ritual at the end of this movie and uh, the the great bad eighties lightning effects that are pulling oh in. <laughs> so much credit to the poor dude. Um, Harlick von Schellendorf is the actor apparently in the Rawhead Rex costume. I feel so bad for that dude who's being asked like, "Hey, look intimidating and look big." He's just like, "I can barely move my head in this thing. What do I do?" <laughs> I can't even close my mouth. <laughs> And especially when he's trying to, like, writhe in pain when the lightning hits him at the end. He's just like... It's it's so (laughs) ridiculous. And then, of course, the uh, stinger ending that also is just... I had to, like... I rewound a couple times. I'm like, this is hilarious. Just kid morning. Back, right? (laughs) Well, you can tell that was probably on someone's arm lifting it up. Like, not even a person in that... Oh, yeah, it's just a latex mask on, like, on a plunger. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but I, I guess to close out, we'll go to final thoughts, but I also want to ask each of you, what would you say is uh, probably the moment you feel that like Clive Barker was watching this and felt, I need to like take my stories and do them my way? What is like the one moment where you could tell Clive Barker just got off, like, this is fucking shit, and then like stormed out of that fucking screening room? <laughs> Scott, final thoughts and that query. Oh, man. Well, my final thoughts are... Uh, this is worth a watch if you are either just wanting to be a Clive Barker completionist or just a fan of So Bad It's Good, because you will definitely get some unintentional laughter out of this. My roommate watched it with me last night for his first time, and he was laughing like a fucking lunatic throughout all of it, especially whenever you see Rawhead comes running, and the way he runs looks so fucking stupid. <laughs> like, yes. we both just burst out laughing, and I was I was almost in tears, and my roommate was just dying. He's like, oh my god, how is this even a freaking movie? It's like, yeah, that, that's pretty much why this is entertaining. But, yeah, and there are no other really good qualities other than that. It's just, you know, so dumb, it's entertaining. But, oh, man, I almost want to say the whole movie is what makes Clive Barker want to say fuck this. But no, I am I would say probably the the way they kind of made, tried to make Rawhead intimidating, but just failed so miserably. He just looked like an 80s fucking metalhead. And I think just that design, like, from Clive Barker's probable description, knowing him, he probably went into great detail on what it looked like. And they... Fucked up a bit royally on this, I think. All right, Adam. I mean, it's just a boring, forgettable movie for me. It, it, it doesn't even really qualify as a so bad it's good for me. Uh, I just I found it a slog to get through this one. I, I do agree with Scott. If you're a Barker completionist or even an '80s like obscure horror movie, you know, fanatic, then this might be up your alley. But for me, it was just it was a bore, bore. And, uh, I mean, I, I tend to almost agree with Scott again. It, it's probably a lot of the creature design might have, like, thrown him off. But also, they, they just the sloppy cuts from the gore or when anything good's about to happen. Like, you barely get anything. And it, it's just, like, I, I like to imagine maybe he destroyed the kitchen because he's got a gluten allergy and all their <laughs> shit wasn't gluten-free and it just pissed him off. Like, who knows? It's just, it's a bad, bad movie. Yeah, um, it's it's quite bad. I would say there's enough fun moments to maybe make, like, a solid YouTube supercut. Um, but I do agree that as a whole, it's, it still is very sluggishly paced, and the characters aren't that interesting for the most part. And we're describing basically all the, like, really fun moments or occasionally kind of interesting horror bits. I can definitely see why this would influence Barker to kind of take the reins. I'll say, uh, for the moment, it's probably that kitchen scene I was talking about. Because I think it's... Really, I could imagine Clyde Barker just sitting there, and he's just like, okay, Rawhead's gonna come out here, maybe it'll look good this time. Oh, oh no, he's behind boxes. And I could just imagine the play-by-play of him watching that sequence, and just mm-hmm. being flabbergasted and horrified, and just, like, angry, and making other theater patrons feel uncomfortable as he yells at the screen. <laughs> that feels like <laughs> the moment where a Clive Barker would be quite upset about what's going on. Also, he'd be like, there's no penises here! Not even one! <laughs> Uh, before we continue onward to our good feature, uh, let's hear about a great ESO show that you could be listening to right now. We are the Metal Geeks Podcast, and on this show, we have heavy metal, comic books, video games, movies, theme parks, and more. Wait, wait, wait. Comics? Yep. And movies? Exactly. Video games? Yeah. Metal? 
Of course. How does theme parks fit in this? It just does. All of us Metal Geeks can be found at MetalGeeks.net. At Metal Geeks for Twitter. Metal Geeks on Instagram. And Metal Geeks on the Facey Space. You can also find us on iTunes. Subscribe today. Metal Geeks. All right, and let's move on to our good feature, uh, one we're very highly anticipating talking about, 1992's Candyman. In cities everywhere, they whisper his name. It's just a story. Just a ghost story. It ain't safe around here. That don't scare too easy. I came for you. He's here. Candyman uh, came out October 16th, 1992, written and directed by a Bernard Rose based on the novella The Forbidden by Clive Barker, and from what I understand, this short story that this is based on is not very similar to the final film. Is that right, Adam? I mean, it's similar as far as in spirit, but uh, a lot of things are changed, like the locale, character names, things like that. Right, because from what I understand, it takes place in Liverpool originally, the story. Yes. And it's, because yeah. it, this obviously takes place in Cabrini-Green. Um, which is a real housing project that used to exist back in the day. So apparently the, the main thing is that Candyman was not actually a black man originally. He was, I guess, not really described as any specific race, was he? No, yeah, absolutely. He was described like he could be considered all thing, all race, all colors, all gender, everything. It was almost like dependent on how you wanted to see him. So basically Slender Mannequin? I mean, kind of. Slenderman just ripped the fuck out of Clive Barker off again. Oh, dude, 100%. Oh, for Clive sure. Barker Lovecraft. Yeah. But, I mean, he didn't wear a fucking three-piece suit and a tie. <laughs> you know? Right, right. As opposed to with uh, the Bernard Rose adaptation, decided to take a very specific turn, where, as you mentioned, this takes place in Cabrini Green, um, and is mainly about sort of a white grad student trying to investigate about urban myths in urban areas literally, and um, finds out about a mythological creature called the Candyman, who, uh, when you say his name five times in a mirror, uh, will come out and try to kill you, or at least infect your life. And initially, she thinks, oh, mate, this is probably some kind of thing that the residents kind of glom onto. It's not like a real legend, but it's a fascinating one nonetheless. And uh, she finds out that uh, seeing is believing. Yes. And uh, Adam, this was your pick. And so yes. uh, I think we've discussed, even in like previous podcasts that we were on, of, we always wanted to discuss this movie. We always have been huge fans of it. I just want to know, where did it start? When did you first see Candyman? Uh, well, it started before I even saw the movie, because when this came out, this was like the movie. Like Everyone was terrified of it. It even developed the, you know... Instantly, the the fear people would have of looking in the mirror and doing the Candyman thing, much like uh, oh god, Bloody Mary. Yeah, yeah there you go. That, uh, <laughs> but it, it almost took on a life of its own, like instantly. And I mean, people were terrified by this movie. So, of course, I had to fucking see it. And when I first saw it, I mean, I probably saw it probably right after it came out. I was entranced instantly. The, the way it's shot, the soundtrack, the score. I mean, this score in this movie is one of the greatest horror scores of all time. By yeah, Philip Glass. Yes. Yeah, it's fucking fantastic. The acting all around. I mean, Tony Todd is so good in this movie. And 
he's so attractive and alluring and seductive and yet the most dangerous thing ever put on film at the time or at least at this time and i i still stand by i think this is one of the greatest underrated horror films ever made i think this deserves a spot right up in the top 10 with the exorcist with the omen everything i think this movie is a perfectly shot filmed acted scripted horror film i'm getting the sense you're not a fan yeah it fucking sucks dude I mean, shit. <laughs> Chicago. I want it to be in Liverpool, man. I want the I want the Beatles to walk through a shot. You know what I mean? <laughs> be my victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, look at him! A little doobly doobly doobly. Got a little hook candy. <laughs> <laughs> I have all these bees around so I could have honey in my chest. Look. <laughs> he likes the one bird. They say tip of the cup to her. Doobly doo to the next bird. The brown bird, you know. <laughs> Oh okay, gosh. let's uh, let, let's continue on where you, Scott. Um, are you a fan of this movie? And when did you first see it? Oh, I am a huge, huge fan of this film. Actually, I've watched it three times just this year. I was not tired of watching it at all. I could watch this over and over and over again. There's so much to like glean from it. But I think I'm kind of with Adam. I actually watched it probably shortly after it got released on VHS because my stepdad brought it home from his job and. It terrified the shit out of me. Candyman was just so freaking scary. Tony Todd's voice just haunted my freaking dreams for days on end. I know it's like an urban setting, but it reminds me of like a gothic uh, fairy tale in a way, but brought into an urban setting. And then the Cabrini Green alone could be its own horror film, like without like Candyman being there because of all the crap that went down there and just having that setting for a horror film was just absolutely perfect. I love this movie. It's probably my second favorite Barker film right next to Hellraiser. I remember, I, I think it was a similar thing to where, I mean, I wasn't able to see this when I initially came out, um, necessarily. Uh, I was, yeah, you were what, two? <laughs> not not even. <laughs> I, I always heard about this movie in a similar way where, like, before I ever saw a single, like, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, all these other things. I heard about any of those number of horror icon characters just from, like, you know, stories around the playground kind of thing when I was very little. It was just, like, hearing about, like, oh, in the case of Candyman, like, if you say his name in the mirror five times, he comes out. And, like, you know, I played the white suburban thing of Bloody Mary, you know, with my sisters and shit like that, where we would almost say it, and, like, oh, no, we can't say it, though, we're so scared. Like, the movie literally does at one point in a, in a really good scene in the early part of it. Um, and... Then I ended up watching it, and I remember not glomming onto it that much originally, I think because I had seen, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, all these other ones. I'm just like, well, it's not quite as, like, flashy slasher as that other stuff. And really, as I've gotten older, I've only learned to respect Candyman so much more, because I think it's not just, full disclosure, we're three white guys. So, yeah. whatever we make gleam about the social commentary might be slightly skewed from a lesser perspective, necessarily. But still... I think Eat this... for yourself. <laughs> That's true. I've never seen you in public. I mean, you might be the. Right. <laughs> I, I, I I'm don't know. Some, I'm Samoan. <laughs> <laughs> you are the Rock, really. That's the secret of this yeah. whole podcast: is that you're right. the Rock. Um, yeah, but... I do a deep character study. <laughs> All those pictures on Facebook were so convincing. Even the videos. Yeah. You hired a really good, horrible-looking actor, um, but. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah. but any, anyway, I, I've grown to respect it a lot more just considering it's a weird horror movie where it's not necessarily that scary as much as it is truly unsettling and also just sad, but in a really fascinating way. Where, like, you see the neglect and decay of Cabrini Green, which is based in part on the fact that, doing a bit of research, like, Cabrini Green really was a place where it was mostly suffered from neglect from people. And the only time these cities in Chicago ever gave a shit is when the mayor would, like, sick, you know, raids on the people so they could try and find drugs and incriminate and arrest and all this other stuff. So... You feel that sense of neglect, and that's the kind of environment where especially, like, a lack of, you know, education and care and respect for the people who live in these tenant houses breeds mysterious urban legends that spread like Candyman. He even says, like, I'm the whispers in the classroom, this and that. It's the only place where, like, a true horrific legend can kind of survive and permeate is in a place where people don't teach their kids about any sort of danger or are just, like, too swamped with, like, trying to survive in this place to deal with, like, some of the things that lurk in the shadows. I think Candyman's such a great metaphor for what we ignore about people in society, especially those who are underprivileged, and how when this white grad school student comes in, she's like, oh, I'm gonna have fun, like, doing some research and going into some environment I'm not aware of, and then only to realize, like, lady, you're going into a place that has been severely lacking any kind of, you know, control or respect or anything like that, you're going to get turned around sideways. And she does. And I think that's so interesting and so fascinating. It's a, one of those rare horror movies from around this time, the slashers, that really ages beautifully. Yeah, it really does. This could have been made, like, probably in the last five, ten years, the way it looks. Well, that and I think just the story itself. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's still prescient. It's still timeless. It's still relevant. You know, it's just this movie just like I said, it fires in all cylinders. Uh, it's a think piece. It's gore. It's scary. There's ghosts. It's creepy. There's, you know, a weird love story. It's just this movie kind of has it all. And uh, unfortunately, I do think Candyman does get swept up in the slasher genre. Like a lot of people I've seen pictures, you know, where it's Freddie and Jason and Chucky and Candyman standing there. Like, no, it's not a slasher. There are only, like, three or four deaths in the movie. And most of them are off-screen, yeah. even. Like, the most intense one is the one that happens to, like, the one um, counselor the person. Yeah, the doctor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is the most horrific thing. It's almost as if, like, Candyman's, like, just bursting out of him from the back. And it's like, there's gore yeah. there, but it's not an intense amount of gore. It's one of those things, kind of like the original Texas Chainsaw, where I remember it being gorier when I last saw it, like, ages ago. and then watched, Everybody like, oh, does. Yeah, it's not really at all. No, yeah, so there's I no blood so. at all in that movie, really. No, I, I absolutely agree. You get that big arterial spray with the doctor, but that's kind of about it. The, it, well, it you get the aftermath with uh, her friend that dies in her apartment. Yeah. Then, but it's like a quick flash, so it's not even anything that's really focused on. But it's still so horrific, the way Casey Lemons, uh, previously, we covered her film, The the Caveman's Valentine, her directorial oh, film. I, yeah. Uh, yes, we did. But I, I just love the way that, like, you see the aftermath of that, or even, like, the dog. Like, the, the aftermath of that oh, dog attack yeah. is, like, so terrifying. Oh, I, the most disturbing scene in this movie to me is the flashback with the little boy in the bathroom. Yes. That is so yeah. disturbing and fucked up. That that part alone when I was a kid fucking scarred me. 
I mean, that's one of those images I can't shake, like, ever. Well, no, yeah, and I think it's because, like, you see a huge amount of, necessarily, blood, but it's really just the aftermath. That's what we're talking about. Like, you don't see the actual, like, penetration really that much at all with that hook, which is another thing. Like, you, you see sort of just that hook and the stump around it, and that's more terrifying than seeing anything. Like, I love the whole sequence where you have the one, uh, it's Michael Culkin, the one doctor who tells the story of Candyman. And it's a great example of, like, telling us in a way of, like, the, you know, the show-don't-tell thing. But you, they tell us, and also, these sound effects are phenomenal over that. Like, they just say so much oh. about that story without showing you any of the horrific imagery. Was that the uh, very beginning story? Well, it's the first time we hear the full backstory of Candyman. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, at the, at the dinner. We're not talking about the bit where we have um, the flashback and bad boy Ted Raimi shows up yeah. in Indian. Because <laughs> uh, I had to make a comment about uh, bad boy uh, Ted Raimi. <laughs> I mean, white bread ass nerd Ted Raimi. Well, exactly, that's the point, and it's really funny. It's so fucking funny it's to see hilarious. him just, like, waltzing in a leather jacket, like, sup, babe? What's going on? Clearly needing his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> just on set, he's just talking to a long lamp, just like, sup, girl? Ted, the, the <laughs> actresses that way <laughs> but but i i do agree especially like uh with t- to talk more about you know tony todd this was the movie that definitely made him the horror icon that he is today um even though he'd been previously like in night of the living dead 1990 which is an underrated remake as adam would definitely oh, yeah. agree with yeah. um but right. i i would say like what is so interesting is like he's the only one of these sort of horror icons of this era that could fit into like a dracula style part because all the other slashers are mostly kind of non-vacant and don't have much to say, like a Jason or a Michael. And then Freddy is a goof. He's a clown the whole time. Right. Versus there's a genuine seduction and intimidation and a tragedy to Candyman that also makes him so much more unique than most of the other ones. We're given his backstory about being a cultured black man who was the son of a slave who ended up being killed just because he was in an interracial relationship. Um, there, there's so much tragedy that's packed into that that even as he's doing this murderous rampages, you see the motivations of why, and that makes it just more, like I said, it's this overwhelming sadness that overcomes any of like the real sort of quote-unquote horror scares in a beautiful way. No, I absolutely, I agree. He's literally scarred and tortured by a loss of love and what happened because of it that, I mean, it just permeates through his performance in every way. Like, there's no question to me when he's seducing Virginia Madsen's character that he is doing a dance with her, like a very seductive dance. He's He is kind of in love with her. But, I mean, he's still going to fucking kill her because that's what he has to do now. That's who he is. I, I think it's a, just a marvelous, marvelous character and a marvelous performance. And, you know, hot news, hot off the presses, I just read it. He is, in fact, reprising the role of Candyman in the Jordan Peele produced remake. Right, that's what I read too. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, it's been on and off announcing in terms of that. That that we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that potential remake near, I guess, the end of our discussion. Um, but Scott, how do you feel about uh, sort of his performance here, and what sets him apart from so many of the other horror icons of that era? The one thing I uh, was going to bring up is this: is kind of what separates him from the slashers for me is he doesn't have like enjoyment from killing. He doesn't have like a sadistic glee like Freddy Krueger does, or like just the one death of in destruction. It's more like he's doing this for a reason that is kind of almost beyond his control at this point, because this is just what he has to do. And the fact that he plays these mind games with Virginia Madsen's character, and it almost plays out like, 
you know, she's the one that's actually doing this the whole entire time. And you like, if you never watched this film before, you're going to be questioning that, like almost till the very end until he murders the doctor. And I love that. Cause that's just like the way he does it. It's yeah, he's just a, not even, I wouldn't even say trickster, but it was just more like he does. He's great at playing the mind games and just like making messing with the person's sanity that he is, you know, tormenting. And it's not for sadistic, gleeful reasons. No, it's definitely more sort of like a means to an end for him. It's something that he kind of has to do. Like, especially when Casey Lemons comes into the middle of, like, that kitchen scene, and she's so terrified, and he has just this look on his face of just, well, you wanted to join, I I didn't want to do this, but fuck it, you're here. Um, You you said my name. You you said said my fucking name. Right, it's almost like the whole original premise of the Cenobites, where they are sort of like a neutral evil kind of mm-hmm. deal. Yes. That's, that's kind of definitely what Candyman's sort of aiming for, but at the same time I agree, like, that sort of seduction, it's almost as if, like, he's just using this as a way of just sort of taking back the punishment and crime that was put upon him, especially with, like, the use of bees. It's such a weird, disturbing image, but at the same time, there's so much weird power in him, like, opening his mouth and all these bees coming out, and some of this other stuff. There's, there's so much there that makes him a uniquely tragic figure amongst a lot of the other horror figures at this time. But we should also definitely talk about Virginia Madsen, where especially when I was going into it this time, I was a bit worried, like, is this going to kind of feel, you know, a bit more dated about, like, it's the white woman's perspective on going into this black community? But I think it honestly almost makes this age better because it's about somebody going into an environment they don't know and just being like, oh, I'm going to study fasting. Interesting. Treating them like basically animals in her own way. Just going, oh, and like, oh I'm going yeah. to study these like foreign concepts. It's like, no, they're real people. And you're going into like their environment and you're trying to like mess with what's going on. And you, you don't know what you're getting into. I think Virginia Madsen does a great job of playing that curiosity and naivete so wonderfully and, and still being sympathetic and not being, you know, just... Almost, uh, there's points where you could almost see her going, like, can I speak to your manager, you know, white lady asshole? Oh, yes. Yeah. She's got a Karen haircut. There's no question. <laughs> um, let's put it this way. She's, she's one of the few, I don't want to call her final girl because she, she's not, but one of the few protagonists in horror movies that you kind of can't hate her. Like, she, I get what she's doing. I get her strive. She's trying to make a name for herself, you know, with her career and everything like that. But like you said, Tom, she is 100% completely out of her. You're out of your element, Donnie, all <laughs> the time. She is always out of her element. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't appreciate the danger of it. She doesn't appreciate the culture that she's sort of thrusting herself into. She doesn't understand. I mean, and ultimately, that's what gets her killed is yeah. she inserts herself into this fucking situation and this story and this history and this urban legend, if you want to call it that, that she had no right in partaking in to begin with. Her obsession is kind of what keeps her going back there over and over and over again. Cause you'd think most normal people would probably avoid going back to Cabrini green after being brutally attacked in that bathroom. But for some reason, she keeps coming back and keeps putting herself back in these dangerous situations just because she needs to know more and try to figure out things more and more and more. And it just, yeah, the obsession just kind of takes over. But at the same time, she also learns after a certain point of like, oh, my danger got this young child in this case in danger. 
and I have to end up, you know, actually rescuing them. Because she even tries with the slightly older child and ends up being used as sort of a witness. And I love how she comes back to him and she's like, look, everything's fine now. You really helped me. I appreciate that. It's just like, but this just means so much worse for me. Like, Candyman's going to get me is his way of saying, like, but you coming in already disrupted things so much. You don't even know the ripples of what's going to happen to me just because he's treated as, like, the snitch of sorts that, like, helped get this guy in. There's there's so much danger that can still be going on, and she doesn't really understand that, like, oh, just because they arrest this one guy doesn't mean everything's going to be hunky-dory in Cabrini Green after right. that. Yeah, I love the fact that they kind of treat... The, Cabrini Green, to use an overused cliche in criticism, all feels like a character in this film. <laughs> You know, it really feels like an immersive environment, and you really do get a sense, especially as we keep going under, and I, I gotta say, like, so much credit to the set designers for, I love all the graffiti in this movie. I think the graffiti says so much about the environment, says so much about, like, the sort of artistic intent trying to come out of this, like, derelict place, and it looks so disturbed, and almost like a gothic statue. Like, this graffiti is the version of, like, the gargoyles in an old gothic dark house story. I could be wrong on this, but didn't they actually go to Cabrini Green and film from the apartment buildings? The exteriors, yes. Yeah, 100% to the point to where they hired uh, a lot of the people you see in the movie, like uh, when Helen or Virginia Manson's first walking into the building and there's that group of guys standing outside. Those are real gang members that they hired to be in the movie as almost like a protection sort of deal, too. Uh, yeah. So they would not fuck with them. But then, like, I think if I remember correctly, it was on one of their last days or if not the last day of shooting, like two bullets like went through the production of the truck. Like, yeah, it was it was fucking a real ballsy move to shoot at Cabrini Green. Yeah, they all thought it was probably like, wasn't it what's happening that was took place at Cabrini Green? Right. Yes. That was the sitcom. Yep. They're just like, oh, it's what's happening. Like, <laughs> it's going to be totally fine. Nothing wrong is going to happen at all. I do want to mention Bernard Rose real quick. Yes. God, does he direct the shit out of this movie? I think it's so fantastic. And, I mean, he fought constantly for a lot of the choices, like even the opening helicopter shot, which I think is so, I mean, just perfect. It's a beautiful opening credit sequence. Yeah, it's so necessary. But a funny backstory about him real quick. He got his first directing gig because he was in, uh, you know, film school in London, and they had a shared telephone in the hallway. And somebody had called asking for another student, and he answered. And they said, well, uh, since he's not there, can you direct a music video? And it was relaxed by Frankie Gozali. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. And I do agree that he does a great job, this, especially considering like he did take a lot of delicate care. Like He apparently actually had meetings with the NAACP about, like, hey, would it be offensive for us to make like a Freddy Krueger sort of character black? And their quote was basically just, why are we even having this meeting? Jeez. Why couldn't a black man play like a Freddy Krueger style right. character? That's that's almost more perverse that you say he probably potentially couldn't at some point. And I think that's the thing is that he treats this environment with respect, but in the same way of like, he doesn't ever necessarily make Cabrini Green feel like, oh, this is a dark, spooky castle as much as like this is a real place that's just derelict because nobody pays attention to it. it you really get that sense of like abandonment that really permeates from his direction. Oh yeah, definitely. And he's definitely got a European sense of style coming into this very, very American ghetto story. And I think that kind of what adds to the, the whole, um, you know, scope of the film as well. Um, and, and right down to, I, I will say, I, I love the climax of this movie and how mm. it sort of treats the idea of like mob mentality coming around when, like I said, like, you know, in an environment that feels neglected, they can often sort of 
jump to conclusions about like, oh, this it, all of our hatred needs to go to this one particular point. That's the part I think that resonates the most because I will say some of this does feel more like a perfect time capsule of specifically like the late 80s, early 90s and how especially people were sort of tossed into projects in particular whereas now we get a lot more. It's just, hey, let's close down these houses and make this into like a hipster hive, a Soho type environment, which is why right. I'm, I'm very curious about the remake kind of that sort of mob mentality thing, like crowding around a threat you don't really know and how you're kind of like stuck in this burning uh, pile of garbage. I just love that whole set piece and how it just really shows the chaos that's building up and how Virginia Madsen barely escapes with her life. And she's still like so horribly burnt up and leading into, I think a phenomenal ending for this movie that says so much about like when you try and break into the legend, you become the legend. I just love um, that whole thing. We haven't even mentioned like assholes, Andrew Berkeley and that whole thing. Yeah, I was going to bring him up. up. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a piece of shit. He's perfect at playing those kind of pieces of shit too. Just the actual final punctuation point of his girlfriend, like walking in after, you know, he's summoned Helen and then looking in and seeing, like, oh, God, the, the, the bathtub's just full of his corpse. End of movie. There's a great thing about how, like, she will further become, like, another legend in this entire environment. But, like, along with Candyman. Along with, like, like, legends keep permeating despite, like, you know, whatever interest you have in maybe stopping it or trying to understand it. It's like, no, you will just become sucked into it. And the whole final shot of, like, her, like, painting visage on the wall is so... Beautiful. I just love that whole ending so much. Same. It is just uh, poetic. At first, when I saw it originally, I wasn't too thrilled on the stinger ending, if you want to call it that, or the jump scare ending, like uh, a lot of movies were doing at the time, and unfortunately still do. No, I, I think it's a perfect, perfect ending. The thing is, I think it's such a perfect ending that it should have just stopped at that they did not need to make sequels yeah i was gonna transition into that before we kind of go into final thoughts um yeah. i watched the Candyman sequels for the first time <laughs> just before yeah we did the show uh, um i'll say i think Candyman 2 is a very well made but terrible film <laughs> i think it's like i i, I think it's really very well directed because it's directed by bill condon who they're going to make much better films after yeah. that uh, but I think the the script just has a lot more sort of like the pervasive stuff about like, oh, hey, let's play a lot more on sort of like, oh, he was son of a slave, not necessarily educated, but son of a slave. And let's go into more of his backstory in a way that feels kind of a lot more of like the movie I feared Candyman would age terribly into being. Like Candyman 2 is that movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. It, it doesn't quite fit. And then Candyman 3 is a really bad directed video sequel. <laughs> it just is really a bad remake of the first movie. It's oh so bad. Yeah. Donna I... DiMarco. Oh, good <laughs> lord. Yeah, I've never actually seen those. I was always uh, skeptical of, like, tarnishing the first one because, like, I've I've only heard not-so-good things about the sequel, so I just kind of avoided them. I was going to uh, attempt watching them for my 31 days of Halloween since I'm trying to watch a lot more first-time watches. Mm-hmm. So, I'd sure argue that. the first, maybe... 10 to 15 minutes of Candyman 2 is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the rest is kind of like, eh, it just becomes mediocrity. Especially when they get into, like, actually showing his backstory. They literally have a bit where somebody, like, takes some honey off of a stung-up body and just tastes it like, it tastes like candy. Candyman! Oh, my God. And they, and they, and they repeat it five yeah. times, because you're like, oh, 
that's why. Like, no, yeah. that's so fucking stupid. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> it's I, I, but that does bring up the interesting thing. We mentioned uh, this remake slash sequel, I guess. I'm not sure quite what it is at this point uh, that's going to be coming out next year. It's produced by Jordan Peele. I'm really excited just because I realized um, the director, uh, Nia DaCosta, um, who is a black female director, which is a very interesting different choice. We never had um, a black female director of one of these movies. But also I realized I had seen her first film, which came out earlier this year, a movie called Little Woods which um, is a movie with Tessa Thompson and Lily James in it. Um, it's like it's a drama, but what I like about that movie is it takes place in like the Ozarks, and it's about like these people who are trying to survive in like a poverty-stricken like Washington sort of area. That movie has such a great sense of place, and I would love to see her translate that to Cabrini Green, which, uh, especially in this modern context where I'm now, from what I've seen, it's like a bunch of, like, the original place where, like, the high-rises were is now, like, a Dick's Sporting Goods store <laughs> and shit like that. There's so much you can do with, like, trying to erase history and sort of, like, taking a place that once had a lot of problems but at least some kind of distinctive mark and culture and people that lived in it and completely dis- demolishing that for mass consumerism purposes. There's so much you can do with like a modern Candyman now. And I'm very excited to see what goes on there. Especially because I heard uh, Jordan Peele also wrote the script for it or the screenplay for it. So I'm, and I love his style of writing. So I'm very curious to see what he does. Yeah. And I also heard that they were toying with the idea of making it a male uh, protagonist who was seduced by Candyman. And uh, not only do I think that's a really bold and progressive and smart move, but it also just adds so much more to the character of Candyman himself to where it doesn't matter what he's just seduction is his game, male, female, doesn't matter. I think that adds so many potential different layers to, you know, what is already a great, great character, yeah, especially considering the last three movies have had white female protagonists, and it's like, we couldn't have buried this up a bit at all. <laughs> Guys, come on. Of course. Not, not at all. Uh, but let's go into final thoughts. We could talk for a while about Candyman, but let's do final thoughts now. Scott, our guest, your final thoughts on Candyman. Uh, my final thoughts is this movie is just iconic and should be deemed a classic. Like Adam said when we first started talking about it, this has got to be like, right up there with the exorcist and like it is one of those truly uh haunting but sympathetic ghost stories it's a story that can be told over and over and over again and just the setting alone of cabrini green just i i love seeing like old history like of these old towns and cities and stuff like that and like and i ended up reading up on a lot of cabrini green just the history alone was fascinating enough and to get a movie to have me dive into the history of like say like a small little town like that that that's gotta say something because i'm not big into like learning that stuff and yeah the performances alone are just all around top notch tony todd i don't think he's ever done as well as he did in Candyman. like everything else he's done is good but i think this was like his level of greatness right here like it was just incredible. He just took on this portrayal of Candyman and ran with it. And uh, Virginia Madsen, I, yeah, her performance was also very, very well done all around. Fantastic movie. I could even introduce this to people that are not fans of horror films. 
It crosses barriers, for sure, in a lot of ways. Yes. Uh, but Adam, your final thoughts on Candyman. Which, by the way, we've said over five times, right? So where is he? Come on. Where's, where's, <laughs> nah, where is he? I want, I want him right here. Come on, Tony. I loved those Final Destination movies. Come on, Tony. <laughs> but Adam. <laughs> no, I, I basically agree with everything Scott said. And I think I've said it already. I think this is a perfect horror film. It just doesn't get much better than this for me, especially as far as 90s horror. You know, we did, you and I toyed around with the 90s horror uh, podcast for a little bit. You were the host. And, you know, we've talked about some of them. And I think this, you can stack up to any of them. And I, I'd wager this would win. It's one of my favorite movies. It's easily in my top 10. I can't sing its praises enough. Um, it, the score, again, as we mentioned earlier by Philip Glass, it just sells this movie. Sells an already perfect movie, makes it better. I, I just absolutely am in love with this film. Well, I do completely agree with what you guys have obviously been saying, but I think it's it's definitely the keynote I want to really point out is how much this movie just ages so perfectly, and how much like despite being very much of 1992, it also has a lot of themes that still resonate very sadly in a lot of ways, but still at the same time, like all how all the characters still feel genuinely realistic how even the foibles that they might have like my probably one issue i could say with this movie is virginia madsen needs to stop picking up fucking bloody knives just she does it constantly <laughs> it's a bad idea on so many levels don't pick yeah. up bloody knives virginia madsen <laughs> anyway um i i do agree i really do love this movie i think it ages so perfectly well and uh, i think it's such a great um, example of like what horror can do like I've heard so many dumb horror fans say like man why are you trying to make horror movies political why are you trying to say any horror movie has like any kind of like message whatsoever I want to ignore that and just have fun with my gore I like having fun with gore too but the movies that really resonate and really have a lot of powerful and like sort of stained power that really stick around are the ones that have some kind of inner, inner lining like political message along with the atmosphere and the gore and the wonderful performances and really sleek direction. And Candyman's one of those shining examples of that where I do agree definitely of the nineties and maybe ever, it is one of these standout ones that I would say would still be worthy of being seen by anybody, even non horror fans it definitely resonates in a lot of ways that, uh, I hope if anybody who was listening to this hasn't seen Candyman, why the fuck are you listening? Let's go see Candy. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, just ruin the movie for yourself. <laughs> see the movie for yeah, yourself. Yeah, but this is one of the biggest ones that we've done where, like, if you haven't seen this, you owe yourself to watch this movie. For yeah. sure. Yes. But that is the end of our discussion about our two Clyde Barker films. And uh, we have some feedback to read because every Monday at Pod, which is on Facebook and Twitter, uh, we ask you all about uh, what are your favorite and least favorite examples of, uh, you know, whatever topic we're doing for the week. And so we asked you about Clyde Barker adaptations and uh, you all responded. First off, James Rodriguez says, The good picks are easy. Candyman and Hellraiser are bone-chilling tales with compelling narratives and grisly effects, which get under one's skin. I'm not a fan of Nightbreed, which doesn't do justice to the interesting premise, but this could be down to me not viewing the correct cut of the film. I, I mean, I like Nightbreed, um, but then again... I love Nightbreed. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm more curious about, interestingly, like the film, TV series adaptation. I think there's a lot you can do with like a TV version of that concept. As far as I know, that's on sort of hold based on Clyde Barker's health and everything like that, because he definitely wants to be heavily involved in it. But I do think an episodic version of Nightbreed would really, really 
could be something cool. To really flesh it, especially like that whole what's the, what's the town called again? Midian. Midian. Yeah, I think to flesh out Midian, some of the other characters. I know there was like the super long director's cut, but I've heard so many people say it's not worth the three hours and nine minutes to watch it. Have you seen the the Cabal cut, Scott? Yeah, I got the director's cut from Scream Factory, but yeah, I never did so, see the I Cabal mean, it, cut. It's legitimately basically the same thing. And oh, even the director's cut from Screen Factory just adds on scenes they didn't need. Yeah, like a whole like five minute uh, scene the of uh, the main girl singing. Oh my god! Her horrible, horrible god. singing. <laughs> we got it. To me, it's unnecessary. Uh, I, I mean, I do think Nightbreed's a flawed movie, but I still think, based on what it's trying to convey and just the possibility of what it could be, I think it's a very, very fun movie. Yes. Ebony Sierra Bell says, uh, Ryehead Ricks is bad, but has some hilarious moments in it. I think we kind of agreed with that. Um, yeah, I, well, I did. <laughs> uh, Stephen D. at Waiting FTH says, uh, Hellraiser and Candyman are standouts. I have a soft spot for Hellraiser 2 and Nightbreed, fully acknowledging that that's more based on Cronenberg and the comic series than the film itself. Despite Lord of Illusions, um, I'd like to see a Harry Amore. Uh, series to be honest and um, that was your alternate pick and uh, you're a fan of lord of illusions yeah i'm a big fan of lord of illusions i'm a big fan of the harry demore character too he pops up in a couple books um yeah i, w- I would love to see that scarlet gospel turned into uh into a movie uh, i enjoyed it no i yeah i'm a big fan of lord of illusions I'm, like i said uh i agree with you thomas there's flaws in it uh the the third act is kind of rough but, uh, I mean, fucking Nixon Butterfield alone. Like, oh, shit. No, I will say, I love the opening of that movie. I think the opening oh of the movie God, is such, like, so a, fucking good. a great tense situation to just, like, be thrown into. Like, a great example of the in-media res of just, like, oh, my God, what the fuck's yeah. happening? What's this cult? What's going on? You really get immersed in it. And I do also like Scott Bakula as a Harry D. I but then too. again, that might also just come from, like, man, Scott Bakula, you deserve so much better. Really good in it. Gay Harry Demore series could be pretty cool. But I don't think it's ever going to happen, unfortunately. Maybe it would almost work better if you kind of did, like, almost a um, Castle Rock-style thing about, like, different Clive Barker characters and had the influence kind of permeate into a TV show kind of somewhat based on his works. Almost maybe, like, a Fargo. Where you yeah, have, I could see that. You kind of have, like, that would inf- be kind of cool. Right, you have the clear influence, but it's not directly adapted from anything. That might be interesting, um, I, I guess. And, but also, he uh, there was mention of Hellraiser 2. I've grown to at least like aspects of Hellraiser 2, but I think it is the movie where that series kind of goes off the deep end. With the whole moment where Pinhead says, like, wait, I remember, and acknowledges his past, I think is the exact moment where it's just like, and this started taking a bad turn. (laughs) That would only get worse from there. Yes, no, okay, I agree with you. I think that part is really stupid. I do like a lot of more of the world-building Hellraiser 2, like with the Leviathan and things like that. But Hellraiser 3, to me, is where the series just went, we're done. Yeah, that was... Oh, uh, no, I became wisecracking, uh, wisecracking Pinhead in that one. I, I vaguely uh, recall... Is that the one with the CD cinema? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember that. <laughs> and the guy with the camera lens for the eye. Yeah, yeah. Ready for your close-up! Like, oh no, what are we doing? No, I think Hellraiser 2 has problems. I, I do think that Pinhead all of a sudden be like, oh, I was Captain Elliot Spencer, and I don't want to be this anymore. Stupid. 
they should have never humanized the Cenobites at all. No. But what are you going to do? It exists. Brian Kane says, uh, Barker wrote for a criminally underrated video game called Undying in 2001, which, uh, while a commercial flop, quietly influenced the blossoming action horror genre. And he also wrote for a 2007 squad-based horror shooter called Jericho, which is every bit as terrible as that description sounds. I didn't know he dabbled in video games. That's interesting. Yep. I played both of them, and Jericho was, yeah, really bad. But, yeah, Undying actually had some really cool moments in it. I never played on Dying. I did play Jericho, and it was atrocious. It's really, really fucking bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we also got some feedback about our last episode about Kevin Smith from a Monica Siegfried, uh, who said, uh, Dogma is such a favorite. I owned it on VHS, but I haven't seen it since we got rid of that ancient thing. Your podcast ha- ended up being quite a memory lane trip for me. Thank you, Monica. We appreciate it. Well, that. thanks, sir. Yes, for sure. And I did also want to mention, because of this, uh, there's a story I forgot to talk about in my weird Kevin Smith adolescence. When I was about 13, I took a trip with my family to New York, and there was a point um, where we, like, right after we arrived, I think the day after we arrived in New York, where Kevin Smith had a signing at his um, Jane and Silent Bob Secret Stash, the comic book store. I was, like, begging my mother, like, can we take a train to New Jersey and go over to the fucking comic book store? And God bless her, she did that. It was interesting because we went over to New Jersey and we stood in line for hours. And I, there's some horrible picture of me with, like, horrible braces next to Kevin Smith somewhere. <laughs> nice. Um, but the thing is, um, we had to, like, go immediately after that signing onto the train and bolt over to Radio City Music Hall to see the Rockets. Like, right after that, we were meeting my other members of my family <laughs> right there. So we're just, oh, like, wow. dressed in awkward fucking, like, street gear to go see the Rockettes uh, at Radio City. That, that, that's probably the most fanboyish isms I ever got to. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. Those are always fun to hear. Yes, I was such a fucking dork. Anyway, thank you all for submitting this feedback. I think we all are. Fucking, fucking was. here's here's the difference though this dork wouldn't take a train in new jersey to go to a fucking comic book signing while he was in new york i'm i've drawn that dork line long ago (laughs) but anyway thank you all for sharing that feedback and uh thanks to other people like chris oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to emily scarter for the art for our show and of course Thanks to Mr. Scott Crawford for being a guest on another lovely round of our Double-Edged Double Villain. Uh, go ahead and uh, plug yourself. What, how, where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun, like always. Well, I will still plug my podcast. We haven't recorded an episode since February because just a lot of personal issues happened. And we're hoping to get it started back up again. But it's uh, the podcast by the cemetery. Our last episode that we did was during Black History Month where we covered uh, Candyman and Sugar Hill, which if you haven't seen Sugar Hill, I highly recommend that movie. That movie is entertaining as hell. fucking love Sugar Hill. I'm going to be possibly doing a video game podcast with my roommate at some point. That's still just in the works. Hasn't even come to fruition yet. But uh, you can also find my writings. I write for pophorror.com and I mainly lead the video game section of the website now uh do occasionally go and review uh, horror movie screeners every so often but we may be branching off and creating a sister site called pop gaming sometime in the future so keep an eye out for that as well 
Uh, and you can also find me as Scott Crawford on Facebook. All right. And uh, you can also follow us on both Facebook and Twitter as at DEDBpod. Uh, where, like we said, we post up those feelers and episode links and whatever zany things we might do. Um, and also you can send feedback to us at uh, doubleedgedoublebill, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Um, or you can find me at my own individual Twitter account, at not the who's Tommy, uh, where I do my own little musings. And I also do writing for marianitomas.wordpress.com, where I write reviews and such. And I also do some satirical superhero news at uh, truesuperherofans.com, where I write ridiculous articles like just this week that we're recording i posted up about um laura dern and blue the raptor having a on-set feud during the rehearsals of jurassic world 3 <laughs> oh that's awesome it gets very saucy uh, in that particular article um and also just to throw out we mentioned this last week when we had uh, rafe talish our guest uh, but i was a guest on his show it's a burgeoning show it's just his second episode called have not seen this where i talked about uh walk hard the Dewey cox story yeah that that movie is awesome it's fucking great. It's so awesome. I love it so much. It's uh, so good. And Adam wouldn't let me talk about it. Also, I had to talk about it somewhere. <laughs> I had to. Uh, well, uh, I did my job. And uh, you can find Adam, um, I'm guessing, in the corners of Cabrini Green, just like covered in graffiti and blood, and what was on the walls of that bathroom in that movie. Oh, covered in shit? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would... <laughs> Well, I mean, just that part's probably accurate. Well, for more quality content like that, please subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube or Spotify or Stitch or other podcasting platforms. And uh, if you're listening on the ESO network, uh, why not dig into the archives on our Podbean feed to look at, because we only posted up to episode 68 from there on on ESO. There's so many other episodes you can dig into there for. And if nothing else, if you could either rate, review, or even just share the show around, we would appreciate it because that gets us more listenership. What the fuck, people? (laughs) I got mouths to feed. <laughs> With all this non-existent podcast money, this Monopoly money that right, we make exactly. off this show. That Before we skedaddle out of here, uh, we gotta do our picking for next week, Adam, and we're continuing that horror train of rolling this month. Uh, with our next episode is all about Italian horror. Italiano. Truly, the, the spirit of my people coming into a horror context, which, as I've even said on the show before, I'm shamefully not as aware of as maybe I should be. Uh, oh, this is yeah. one of my favorite genres of films, too. Oh, okay. What are some of your favorites from the Italian horror subgenres, Scott? Actually, uh, this one's like kind of an unpopular opinion, but I am a huge fan of Argento's opera. Opera's really good. Yeah, I love that movie, and I'm also a kind of a fan for some of the Lucio Fulci stuff. Like, I obviously love the Gates of Hell trilogy, and I started adventuring outside of that, and I watched uh, Conquest recently, and that one's bad, but oh, it is so entertaining. It is a Rawhead Rex entertaining level right there. If you're a fan of Italian, I highly recommend uh, watching Astron 6's The Editor, because they do an homage to all the Italian films in that. And it I've is heard about that one, yeah. Incredible. Uh, now, it's time to do the picking, where... Like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, each of us has two movies of different qualities. This time, I have the two good movies, and it has the two bad ones that fit the Italian horror subgenre. Usually, I would pick a number between 1 and 10 for Adam's picks, and then he would pick a number between 1 and 10 for my picks. But because we have the lovely Scott Crawford here to be our Vanna White, our audio Vanna White, to pick these little selections here, uh, you're going to go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10 for both of our choices. So for my two good ones, Scott, number between 1 and 10. All right, well, thank God you said... 
audio version of Vanna White because I don't <laughs> think I could be that sexy. Um, Buddy, you got to get some confidence. Yeah, don't, come on. Don't, don't put yourself <laughs> come down, on, bro. Come on. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'll see what I can do. All right. Well, for Thomas, I'm going to choose number three. Okay. At number two, I have Cemetery Man from 1994. Oh, nice. That movie's so good. I have never seen it. Oh, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. And your other choice, Thomas? Yes, at number eight, I had, uh, speaking of Argento earlier, I had Deep Red, which I also haven't seen. No, I am. I'm good with either of those. Uh, Cemetery Man, you know, it's one of those that I remember seeing snippets of, but I don't think I ever saw the full thing. So I'm, it, it, that's actually one that's been on my list to check out. So It's I'm a similar thing with me. Yeah, I'd seen clips for sure. We'll talk about that next week. But now, Adam, you have two bad picks. So, Scott, pick them. All right. This could go badly. Uh that's by design. It's supposed to go badly. <laughs> I know. Well, let's go with number six. At number seven, I have Burial Ground, The Night of Terror. Oh, God. I'm aware <laughs> of this one. I haven't seen it, but I'm, I, I've, I've heard oh, some things. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> A lot of love for the horror genre, but this film, oh, my God. Right. I, yeah. But what, what was your other choice, Adam? At number two, appropriately, I had Troll 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one, I, I, I'm sure you've all heard of uh, the great troll film without trolls. Right. Yes. yes. Uh, but uh, that is the end of our episode for the night. And on that note, guys, let's crowd around the mirror and say it. Come on, let's do it. Candyman. 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 Ah, oh, fuck it. We're done. Good night. Here's looking at you, kid. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.